Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a double homicide that occurred in 2016. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Nobody sent me on this mission. Nobody says I have to soldier on. I volunteered. But now that I'm on this path, it's harder and harder to turn back. My wife thinks I must have a secret death wish, but it's more complicated than that. There are killers out there in the jungle, and I'm searching for the king, the man who can tell me what really happened one January night when masked gunmen stormed a homeless encampment and shot five people. From Rainstream Media in Seattle, in association with Warner Media in Atlanta, this is episode one of season two, The Search for the King of the Jungle. I'm your host, David Payne. People were killed and three wounded Tuesday night in a shooting near a homeless Deadly shooting in the jungle may be connected to a drug debt. Three teenage brothers were arrested and these 17, 16, and the youngest, just 13 years old. Are you ready? Yeah. Heads up. That's where you step. Gotcha. It's an unusually beautiful fall day in the Evergreen State. A cloudless blue sky frames this forest, dense with pines and firs, and graced with the occasional notes of burnt orange poplars and maples. And today, my partner Jody Gottlieb and I are not in the woods to scamper around Bruce McClung's locked gate. That was last season. This is a new season, a new case, and we've got a new target in mind. All right, so this is day three of going down in there to see if we can get them to talk. Third time in. Man. We need to make sure that uh, this is it. Yeah. The man we're hunting, the man whose protectors keep telling us to come back another day, lives in a makeshift hut in the homeless encampment on the south side of Seattle in an area known as the Jungle, a 65-acre patch of untamed forest and asphalt it runs along and underneath the city's main freeway, I-5. So it's a Seahawks home opener. There are fireworks going off across the highway. Sounds a little bit like gunshot. Yeah, and a lot of helicopters up in the sky. So. That's when you know you're in the jungle. Exactly. Welcome to the jungle. The man we've come to speak to is the so-called king of the jungle, and he's not in the best of moods. Somebody tried to kill him last week, shot him three times, twice in the arm and once in the head, and it seems like he's itching for a fight. 
The king pummels his heavy bag and watches wearily out of a swollen right eye as we approach. I suspect he thinks we're the cops, but we're not here to talk to him about who just tried to take his life. The subject of our inquiry is a different shooting, one of more deadly and far-reaching consequences for the Emerald City of Seattle. A shooting that he may have been involved with, but for which judgment would be reserved. And like any good tale, before we could render that judgment, we need to hear what happened first from the king's loyal subjects. Possible active shooter situation. We need you to go straight down there. In January of 2016, five people would be shot and two people killed when a group of masked gunmen stormed a homeless encampment about a half mile south of where we are standing right now in a subsection of the jungle known as the caves. Como news starts right now. Breaking now, killers on the run. The scene is a, is a, a tent and uh, multiple shots were fired up. Wanted for shooting five people at a Seattle homeless camp. We do have some very good leads. Um, we're working those leads. But the urgent... Within minutes of this deadly mass shooting, 911 calls led police to a horrific scene unfolding underneath the freeway. As thousands of cars continued to drive directly overhead, first responders made their way up a muddy slope into the dark and bloody encampment of a drug dealer named Fat Nguyen. And reporters weren't far behind with their live trucks and cameras. We also saw a law enforcement chopper circling the area for several minutes as police believed that the shooters might have still been on the scene, but now they believe they're... Despite the chaotic scene, within about 90 minutes of the shooting, Assistant Police Chief Robert Murner was in front of those cameras, telling the public they had it all under control. Tonight, at about 7.20 p.m., officers from the South Precinct responded for a report of shots fired down here on Airport Way. Officers responded, found five individuals suffering from gunshot wounds. As a result of the ongoing investigation, we have two persons of interest that we're interested in. They won't be identified at this time. The police would quickly determine that the target of the shooting was drug dealer Fat Nguyen. And the fact that they were able to identify two persons of interest so quickly assuaged the public that this story was not worth paying attention to. But what happened in the caves that night would not be confined to the boundaries of the jungle. It was the Reichstag fire that pushed scores of homeless into Seattle's downtown streets. Homeless whom you will meet in this podcast, who will astound you with their love for one another. A lot of us have lost our families, but this is our family here. With their frustrations and pain. I just want to know why they are angry at me. Their resilience. I'm not scared to take a punch. They heal. And yes, their criminality. If I look at you, if you look at me the wrong way, I go there and hit you and slap you. Homeless, in whose messy and tragic lives we see clearly, there but for the grace of God go I. When police arrested three suspects five days after the jungle murders, it was big news in the city of Seattle again. This time, not for the circumstances of the crime, but for the age of the defendants. Prosecutors filed murder charges today against three teenage brothers accused of last week's shooting in the homeless camp known as the Jungle. The brothers are 17, 16, and 13 years old. King and the fact that the three brothers, James, Jerome, and Joseph Taafa Lucia, were also homeless, 
Well, that was just too much for this fair city to handle. Immediately, there were calls for social action. Even the DA, Dan Satterberg, a no-nonsense prosecutor, took to calling for change. I'm stepping out of my sandbox just a little bit here to say, as a community, it's time for a serious discussion about whether we can tolerate what we know goes on right here in the middle of our fair city. It's inconsistent with our vision for a modern Seattle, a community that's dedicated to quality of life, that's dedicated to equity and social justice. We know that- Of course, even while acknowledging that the jungle itself played a role in the murders. The law of the jungle and the lawlessness of the jungle created the environment for this mass shooting. A prosecutor's gotta do what a prosecutor does. Because James and Jerome are over 16 years old, and due to the seriousness of the crimes, their cases are being filed directly into adult court. The standard range for James and Jerome, if convicted as charged, is between 90 and 113 years. The youngest brother, Joseph, who was just 13 years old at the time, would be tried and convicted by a judge in juvenile court. He would be sentenced to a maximum of seven years in juvenile prison. But the fate of the two older brothers, James and Jerome, and their involvement in the murders that fateful night would become the object of my obsession this season. And I had no idea where it would lead me. My exposure to the two older brothers' case began in the summer of 2018. I heard there was an interesting murder trial going on in the small Seattle suburb of Kent, Washington that was worth a look. A murder trial that looked like a lock for the government, but whose appearances would be deceiving. Jody had been traveling out of state. By the time she got back to town, this curious case was just wrapping up. So here we are again, David. Here we are. This is your first exposure to this case. So I've been sitting in on the trial. You got to see the closing arguments of the defense and the prosecutor. What's your impression? My initial impression was that the defense attorney is trying to pin it on bad police work. That's the sort of line he's towing saying that the lead investigator, homicide detective, Cooper, basically wasn't doing it by the book. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, once they locked in on a a suspect, they didn't want to find any facts that would go contrary to that. And just like that, we were back. And while the underlying fact pattern in this case would be vastly different than the Tom Wales murder, the actions of the investigators would ring eerily similar. And in both cases, the resolution about what really happened would have the same unsatisfactory conclusion. Please rise for the jury. Madam Courtperson, please stand. I have called you back into the courtroom to ask you a question, and please restrict your response to yes or no. Is there a reasonable probability of the jury reaching a verdict within a reasonable time as to any count or any defendant? No. 
I'm a little stunned, to be honest, when I hear the jury announce it's hopelessly deadlocked. Sitting in my car in the court parking lot, we try to process what just happened. Um, so we just had a hung jury. Yep. See that coming? Sort of, yeah. I mean, we kind of were feeling it was leaning that way. I should point out that we're in a car. It's about 150 degrees inside this car. <laughs> You're such a baby. Man up. Yeah. Let's go. The jury deliberated for about two and a half days when they came back and said we were split. And when we talked to the jurors afterwards, they said, you know, it was five, seven-ish. So a very evenly divided jury with a case that had a lot of evidence. Although I did think it was interesting. They said that the jury was a united front and it was very congenial and that isn't always the case when Did they say congenial or congealed i thought they were saying they were like bacon grease that it cooled oh god jesus seriously <laughs> <laughs> that is your verbiage <laughs> although i do appreciate the bacon reference <laughs> i'm baking right now in this car oh, <laughs> lord One of the jurors said something that the police were very half-assed in this investigation, which yeah. was striking. He said even, you know, filing their reports weeks later and just the way they handled it was sloppy and half-assed was his quote. Yeah. And if it was true that the police may have been half-assed in their investigation, it was equally true that the criminals were half-assed in the crime itself. This shooting in the jungle was as senseless as it was amateur, and many of the facts aren't much in dispute. But to understand why the jury hung in such a straightforward case, we need to revisit both the crime and the trial. Here's senior prosecutor Mary Barbosa describing what happened that night when five to eight men shot up drug dealer Fat Nguyen's encampment. So on January 26th, they dressed in dark clothing they put masks on their head to partially cover their faces. They rode bicycles to one of the entrances up to the jungle. One by one, they pushed those bicycles up the hill towards the jungle. And within seconds of encountering Fat and his camp, they shot nearly every person that they came across at that camp as they grabbed whatever drugs and money they could quickly get their hands on. The open mystery in this case was twofold. Who were these five to eight men? And why did they seem hell-bent on killing everyone at that camp? Something the police didn't know that night. And when they presented their theory in court, something a jury wouldn't sign off on two years later. But that didn't stop the city's top brass from making political hay, even before the victims were wheeled out of surgery. Moments ago, I was informed by the Seattle Police Department that there was a shooting with multiple victims at Airport Way. Ed Murray, the embattled mayor of Seattle, soon to be forced out of office after sexual abuse allegations, just happened to be giving a major speech on the homeless crisis when the shooting erupted. Again, it is an active crime scene, multiple victims, and we will have a press conference later this evening. And uh, both Chief O'Toole and I... So at the obligatory day after shooting press conference, like any good politician, he didn't let a crisis go to waste. He used it to argue for more money. As I spoke, a terrible act of violence occurred in one of those encampments. We currently 
spend $50 million a year on homelessness. That is the largest amount in the history of this city. I believe it is inhumane to leave people in places such as the so-called jungle where they are murdered, where they are raped, and where they have no possibility of treatment. Now, some will say raise taxes. I am proposing that we double the housing levy this year. And this is the ultimate political balancing act, being tough on crime, compassionate with the homeless, and not pissing off the electorate. Q13 Fox News anchor David Rose seemed to sum up the sentiments of many in the city. Here's the big criticism over years. Seattle has thrown tons of money at this problem, Mm -hmm. right? When you talk to homeless people on the street, they've come here from the East Coast because they know the availability of drugs is here and that we are soft on them and provide services for them. So that's why you have the influx. You combine that with the heroin epidemic, with the cartels that are shipping heroin and meth in here. You mix all that together plus this money that they're throwing at the problem, and you're not solving anything. So the mayor said it's going to be a... Of course, if you're not from Seattle or San Francisco or New York or any other big city suffering from a dystopian homeless crisis, you might not appreciate the import of what happened that night and the consequences it spawned. But when the city's biggest sore spot erupted in gunfire, at the exact same moment when Mayor Murray was proposing a major increase in homelessness spending, Seattle was already at a breaking point. And the city wasn't just focused on justice for the victims, or even on catching the shooters. It had a larger target on its mind, the jungle itself. Here's DA Dan Satterberg again. You know, hundreds of thousands of people drive by the jungle every day on I-5. And these citizens are unaware of the struggles that take place there among marginalized people who are homeless, mentally ill, drug addicted, and or criminally oriented. So I agree with Mayor Murray, many members of the city council, that it's time to envision a Seattle without the jungle. It's time to shut it down. And the city would try to do exactly that, shut it down. Yo, officers are on their way. I know you guys is up to something. If you don't want to deal with that shit, get your shit out of here. So when the officers and two years after the crime, they were still trying. On any given day, it seems, you can ride downtown to watch city workers play the game of whack-a-mole in real time. A game that, if not started by the jungle murders, was certainly accelerated by. Walked away and came back, she's like, they won't move. I'm like, what do you mean they won't move? You know, one of the CBT officers. In 2017 alone, Seattle would spend over $10 million on sweeps of homeless tents in this increasingly elaborate contest between cat and mouse. Some of them are booby-trapped now, too. Oh, seriously? Yeah. What do you uh, mean, like... In Golden Gardens, they had, like, razors in the trees where you need to put your hands to get up. Yeah. And uh, they had trip wires and these nail things they put in the ground and covered with brush. Oh, yeah, it's, it's going there now. And when it is all said and done it's hard to tell what exactly has been accomplished. The truth is, anyone paying attention to or working this problem knows the tents will be back within hours of being swept, leading state policymakers to engage in a debate that has echoes in the current halls of Congress. 
State lawmakers are now talking about building a fence to address crime in the Seattle homeless camp known as the jungle. And the Senate transportation. Yep, a fence. Kind of the low rent version of the $5 billion wall being fought over right now for the southern border. Says lawmakers now want WashDOT to build a six foot high barbed wire fence to keep people out. The 8,000 foot long fence will cost about a million dollars to build and an extra six. And just like the wall debate, the proposed solution would not actually address where these people are supposed to go. The political swirl ignited by the 2016 jungle murders would spin off untethered to the crime that was its genesis. In fact, by the time I settled into the second row of Judge Cheryl Carey's courtroom, the media seemed to have totally forgotten about the circumstances that had spawned the debate over how to manage the jungle and the city's homeless. For their actions that night, the defendants are charged with five separate counts, and each of those counts have firearm enhancements. You heard about that in the instructions. The trial of the teenage brothers in Kent was going to be a straightforward murder case, choreographed by two senior prosecutors, Mary Barbosa and Steve Hershowitz. And in it, we could expect none of the political theatrics to distract. And from my vantage point, as a former prosecutor myself, I thought the state's evidence against the Tafa Lucia brothers was on its face pretty compelling. Detailed videotaped confessions of these two teenagers and their brother Joseph bragging about the murders to an informant, and evidence that tied the murder weapons to the boys, painted a pretty damning picture. When you listen to the defendant's words on the video, to their callous descriptions of the crime, to them laughing about the robbery, to the details they gave that so closely match the other evidence in this case from the witnesses and the forensic evidence, I want you to ask yourselves, does it sound like the defendants are simply bragging about a crime that they did not commit? But despite the apparent abundance of evidence against the brothers, there's clearly something else going on here in this courtroom. A nagging feeling that something's not quite right and a hangover of dread wrought by the age of the defendants and the senselessness of the crime. Their crime that day was absolutely devastating and extraordinarily violent, but the actual execution was unsophisticated, consistent with their ages. And the state was left to argue that while these teenagers weren't actually thinking this through, they deserved to be locked away for the rest of their lives. This was a tall order, and one that required the prosecutors to prove, if not for legal reasons, then moral ones, why these boys had allegedly set out to murder five people. The deadly shooting in the jungle may be connected to a drug debt, according to court documents released today. King Fosh, Natalie Swaby. As soon as these boys were arrested, police would realize the public writ large would want to know that answer, too. And the cops had their theory. Well, in these 11 pages, detectives document a case involving three homeless brothers. In here, they write about an informant that said the brothers were in the jungle last week to settle a $500 drug debt owed to their mother. Tonight, we take a look at the timeline. This story, the motive that this shooting was related to a $500 drug debt that the boy's mother was owed by drug dealer Fat in the Wind, is enough for most casual observers of the case. 
Later, when we learn the boys have, quote, confessed, well, case closed. Time to move on.com and let Hershowitz and Barbosa wrap it all up in a tidy bow. And they do a good job with what they have. But as I'm listening to the testimony, I keep getting stuck on this unsatisfactory explanation for a multiple homicide. You're instructed on robbery in the first degree, and I am going to spend some time talking about this because it is clear that the entire motivation for this crime that day was robbery. We know that from what the victims... How does it make any sense that a drug dealer would owe money to an addict user? It would be the other way around, right? And even if somehow you believe the dealer owed the user, how does sending her three teenage sons into the jungle to rob and kill the dealer and everyone around him settle the debt? That didn't make sense either. And how did the mother somehow persuade two to five other people to join this ill-thought-out plot and risk their lives over this supposed $500 debt? These unanswered questions were hanging in the courtroom air for me. When the prosecution calls a witness they have to call because she was a victim of the shooting, but whom they are surely conflicted about putting on the stand. Could you please state your name and say your last name for the record? My name is Tracy Bauer, last name B-A-U-E-R. Ms. Bauer, how old are you? Maybe I should back up. The shooting in the jungle that claimed the lives of Janine Brooks and James Tran also involved light-threatening injuries to three others. Fat Nguyen, the drug dealer who was the alleged target of the robbery, Amy Jo Chenault, a cocaine and heroin addict who happened to be at the camp when the shooting started, and Tracy Bauer, a 47-year-old, five-foot-tall firecracker who was Fat's girlfriend and second-in-command. One week after the shooting, lead detective James Cooper would take photo montages to the hospital to see if any of these victims would be able to identify any of their suspects. And this was on the day after they had already arrested the three brothers for murder. About a week or so after this incident occurred, when you were still at Harborview, you were interviewed by detectives, correct? Yes. You have been interviewed... That's the defense attorney for older brother James, a guy named Dan Norman, questioning Amy Jo Chenault, one of the three surviving victims, about this encounter with lead detective James Cooper. So the first opportunity that you had to speak to law enforcement about this case, to give your version of events was when you spoke with detectives at Harborview about a week after it occurred, correct? Yes, I spoke to Cooper. After you looked at the pictures, you were not able to identify any of them, correct? No. And after you were not able to identify anyone, Detective Cooper told you that it was unfortunate that you were unable to select anyone, correct? Yes. Now, when Detective Cooper told you who he had thought committed this crime... And if Amy Joe's failure to identify anyone would be strike one... Cooper's success with Fat Nguyen's identification of the brothers wouldn't exactly be a home run. On the plus side for the prosecution, Fat was able to identify the oldest brother, James, as his shooter. Mr. Nguyen, I'm showing you what has been admitted now as State's Exhibit 51, which has Seattle Police Department montage identification sheet, and there's a name on the forehead of this person. That's my name. And when you wrote that, were you indicating that you recognize the person in that photograph as the person who pulled the trigger? Yes. And pulled what trigger? The trigger that shot me. 
to start jamming in me. Somebody somewhere will return right after this break. While Fat's identification of James seemed like a very solid hit, turns out that under cross-examination, Fat's batting average wasn't so good. Now, in fact, you identified more than one individual, Detective Cooper, didn't you? I might have did, yes. Okay. You selected at least two, maybe three people from the pictures that he had shown you, correct? Correct. I'm just asking you, at least on three separate pictures, you said to Detective Cooper, that's the guy who's involved in this incident, correct? Probably did. Okay, well, I'm asking you, do you remember that? Yes. Okay. So sitting here today, do you remember that you identified three separate individuals with Detective Cooper? Yes. Okay. I don't have anything further, Mr. Nguyen. Thank you. If Fat's identification of multiple people, not the brothers, could be called strike two, then the third surviving victim's testimony would sit the batter down. Scared, shaken, and physically devastated by the bullet still lodged in her spine, Tracy Bauer, Fat's former number two in the caves, would be called to the stand under police escort by prosecutor Steve Hershowitz. On the night in question, Tracy said she was in Fat's tent with Janine Brooks when she heard the first gunshots. It was just, you know, pop, 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 pop. I knew that there was massive, you know, quite a, few, quite a bit of gunfire. I came running out of my tent. I, I knew um, it had to be hit on, on Fat. I just needed, to, I just wanted to get to him. I didn't want him to die out there alone. I just kept saying Fat, 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 Fat. I was just yelling for Fat. I just wanted to see him. And did you see anybody when you exited the tent? Yes. I saw, um, there was a guy directly standing in front of me, and I saw one, two, three, four other men, or women, I'm not sure, they all had masks on. They were checking back. Tracy testified that that's when one of the gunmen removed his mask, told her to shut up, and shot her in the back as she flinched in reaction to seeing the gun. You said now that the person had a mask on, took it off before he shot you, and said... He took it off. Right when I came around the corner, I was face to face. He picked it off, so he was telling me to shut the fuck up. From what you can remember. Coming out face to face with this guy, and he shot me. What was most striking about Tracy's highly charged testimony, though, was that she knew the man who shot her. Not in some vague passing way. She had known him for years. And did you recognize that person? Yes. How do you know that person? I met him earlier... Uh, someone else that was staying up in the cave, a girl named Bubbles. I met her in her tent, and um, I, I was smoking with him. I, he smoked crystal, I smoked crystal with him. And um, prior to that, I met him in my tent at the Harborview Stairs with his uncle. And that's when I was with Asian Mike. They were in my tent a couple times. And how often had you known this guy or, or smoked with him? Uh, this is probably, I probably smoked with him maybe five times. Total? Yeah. And that shooter? It wasn't either of the two teenage boys standing trial or their 13-year-old brother, Joseph. It was another guy altogether. And what is that person's name? I know him as Juice. Tracy's testimony, which identified the shooter as a guy she knew named Juice, was a prosecutor's nightmare and a defense attorney's dream. 
After the brother's trial ended in a mistrial, we tracked down the jury foreperson, a preschool teacher and author named Debbie O'Neill, to understand how the jury assessed the witness's identification testimony. She told us while they were quite entertained by Fat's stories, he clearly wasn't credible. He was very smooth, very good at lying. And stuff like, well, okay, well, how did you get your money? Oh, I just play dice with friends. We just throw some dice, you know. Oh, yeah, right. So he identified James, which is also a big part of this state's case. Did you guys put credibility in that or just kind of take it with a grain of salt because he was a little bit of a hustler? Well, he was the only one of the three witnesses or the victims who identified anyone. So that came up as like, wow, why only him? And again, it was like, well, especially... Why only him indeed? But it was Tracy's identification of Juice as her shooter that would haunt the prosecution even more. And did the jury feel that she had credibility? Yeah, I think so. Because she seemed broken and trying to piece it back together. And I think she told a little bit about her previous life, and that kind of tugged at people a little bit too. But And then it was like, gosh, getting stuck in that, really stuck in that situation there. But yeah, people, I felt thought she was pretty credible. Tracy would also testify that the government's asserted motive for the killings, revenge for a drug debt owed the mother, was hogwash. My words, not hers. There was a much bigger context at play, a context that involved the real players in the jungle. So when the jury finished its deliberations by agreeing to disagree with what happened, our work began. With two competing theories of who shot Fat and his crew, both wrought from the government's own evidence, was this mistrial a miscarriage of justice or were the jury's misgivings justifiable? Do you have any other description other than... I've got license plates. Okay. Over the next six months, we would work our way deeper into the jungle, sometimes armed, sometimes not. Yeah. Sometimes with backup, sometimes solo. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Oh, God. Oh. Trading guns for butter as we got more and more comfortable among the jungle's residents. Have a good Thank day. Thank you so much for lunch. Oh, my gosh, of course. Next time, no tomatoes, so I saw that. I hate tomatoes. We'd spend more time in halfway houses and methadone clinics than we cared for. <laughs> We'd drive up and down gang-operated streets asking ill-advised questions. You know a guy named Lucky that hangs around here? We'd spend days debating where witnesses could be found. Do you think Lucky's in the deep? Because they have had... And along the way, it changed us. For me, I have to confess, I no longer look at the homeless the same way. They're not some monolithic problem that can be addressed with single solutions or simply avoided with downcast eyes. You see, the tables have turned... And now it's me who wants something from them. Looking into rather than avoiding their eyes. Searching exposed skin for telltale tattoos I've only seen in police stills. For Jody, the change was different. The despair around the murders we investigated was more slow-moving and pernicious. And as we sunk further into the morass, the cumulative senselessness took a stronger hold. woke up fired up this morning. So I haven't really been sleeping very well. And I was like, oh, you know, the weather's turning. And I just got sucked into this. I got to a point this morning where I was like, how did we get here? 
these are kids. These are kids. These are kids. And I think I just like got to a point where something about this verdict, something about the case, something about the demeanor of these kids. Oh, my God, I could go on for six hours. When you say, how did we get here? You're talking about how did society get here? Yeah, just like seriously, when you see these kids. I understood that frustration. As human beings, we are hardwired to try to find meaning in senseless things, to bring order to the chaos around us. I was searching for that meaning, too. And in that moment, I realized my search for the king of the jungle was something more than just a search for the truth. It was a search for hope. Next time on Somebody Somewhere. We do have at least two persons of interest. So how much do you guys know about what happened last night? We know a lot. Because the suspect description that came out immediately was a Samoan male named Juice. I'm saying, what? That cannot be because Juice is in Federal Way. The last time I found out, he was in Federal Way. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change. Turn the ship another way. Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media in association with Warner Media. This podcast is created, written, and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Dayton Cole and Pat Kicklighter at Resonate Recordings. Editorial guidance provided by Mitch Gelman and legal services provided by Stuart Pearson. If you like this podcast, the best thing you can do to support us is to write a brief review on iTunes and share us on social media. You'd be surprised how these reviews can make or break an independent podcast like ours. Thank you for listening. 